0: Welcome to episode 248 of Greater Than Code. I am Artie Starr, and I'm here with my co-host, Jacob Stobel.
1: Hello.
2: Nice to be here. And I'm here with my other co-host, Casey Watts.
1: Hi, I'm Casey. And we're all here together with our guest today, Andrew Dunkman. Andrew, he, him, is an engineering leader and software developer with 17 years of experience. He's worked on and launched tools for contact relationship management, predictive sales, radiology and healthcare, learning and management, business-to-business timekeeping, and most recently in government at 18F, a part of the U.S. General Services Administration that's helping the federal government adopt user-centered technology approaches. We love those. He also likes building community in his free time. He helps moderate the D.C. Tech Slack, a 10,000-person community of tech workers in the D.C. area, and he helps to run D.C. Code & Coffee, an informal hacking and community building event every other weekend. Even though his cat Toulouse is glaring at him for talking too loud, he's excited to be here with us today. Hi, Andrew. Hey, y'all. So nice to be here. I'm, I'm honored to be a guest. Let's start with our standard question to kick stuff off here. Andrew, what's your superpower and how did you acquire it? Thanks for asking. Yeah, this is... Um, whenever I
3: answer the question of what my superpower is, it feels like bragging. So, I did what I normally do when I'm uncomfortable asking a question and I ask other people that question. So, I asked a few friends uh, and uh, they they highlighted both my ability to empathize with people and also my sternness in that empathy. So, I think Sometimes uh, when when you get caught up in, in empathizing with people, you can allow their their emotions and, and their feelings to sort of overwhelm you or, or become a part of you in a way that you're not necessarily hoping for. Uh, and so I like to uh, draw a firm boundary there and then allow to al- allow other people to see that boundary. I suppose. <laughs> so I, I think I don't know. I, I, it's it's hard for me to say that that's a superpower, but I'm just going to lean into what other people told me.
1: I think that's a pretty good superpower. I like it. How did you acquire that? I
3: acquired it. Uh, I, credit, I credit my mom a lot, actually. My mother is uh, a dual major in psychology and English. Uh, and as growing up, she had the worst way of punishing me, which is uh, anytime I do something wrong, she would say, can you describe to me what you did and, and tell me how it made the other person feel? which is the absolute worst thing to do to a child to make
1: them explain how they've hurt you.
3: <laughs> uh, so I, I credit, I credit that, uh,
1: that a lot for developing those skills. That's so funny. You think it's the worst thing you can do? Would you Im- could you imagine yourself doing it ever if you are around children like that? Oh, totally.
3: <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Uh, I now do it to, to my friend's children. I have no children myself, but I do it to my friend's children, and uh, it's, it's appropriately uncomfortable. I like that. Yeah.
1: It can be the worst and it can be helpful and productive.
3: <laughs> I believe it. Yes. As one of my coworkers like to say, two things can be
2: true. That boundary, I think I've been thinking about something along the lines of that recently, particularly in work settings where you can get really burnt out when everything is high stakes emotionally at work. I think that's a really good boundary to have. Absolutely,
3: and it's also super hard to know, <laughs> like both know where that boundary is and, and what to do when you are coming up to it. I think some people and myself uh, occasionally sort of notice you've crossed that boundary in retrospect, but not necessarily in the moment. Uh, and it's hard to start of to sort of know your your tells when you're getting close to that that line, uh, and and when to sort of you know pull the e brake and take a walk or. Go out and, and find some way to sort of disengage uh, or sort of reengage in yourself as a human and your human needs.
1: I'd love to hear an example of a time when you pulled the e-break recently, Andrew. It's so vivid. You must have a lot of stuff under that sentence.
3: Uh, so my current organization, uh, at and is one that's uh, matrixed. So we've got our, our chapters, is what we call them, uh, which is our sort of disciplines. Those are engineering and design product acquisitions. They're groups of people that do the same same kind of work. And then our other angle of the matrix is our projects. So those are sort of business verticals, like the kinds of people that we're helping uh, and the, the organizations that we're assisting in, like around public benefits or around national security or around natural resources. And so the result of a matrix organization is that you sort of have two aspects to, to who's managing you. You have the manager of your work um, and you have the manager of your discipline. And, the, the positive thing about that is that you can use both angles of the organization to support you in different ways. So sometimes in your work, you need someone to speak up for you as a person or as your skills development angle. Uh, and sometimes you need someone to speak up for you in terms of the project work that you're doing, advocating for success in the, the specifics of your project, um, regardless of the, the way you're contributing to that project. And the result, as you sort of zoom out into upper layers of management, is that you have a conflict designed into the system, uh, and that conflict, when things are working well, benefits the health of the organization, both the health of health of people and the health of projects are um, advocated for and supported but when things you know uh get out of balance which happens all the time in every organization i've ever been in you've got pendulums that swing back and forth between different balances and when things get out of balance then suddenly you find yourself overextended or advocating to an empty room and a recent example uh was a conversation around um advocating for uh the benefits of uh, i'm on i'm on the um the chapter side of the house uh so i i support people uh, within engineering and I had to pull an e break in a conversation where I was uh, advocating for the health of, health of people, but that I, I didn't have the right ears in the room to make a uh, positive change. So I found myself getting sort of ahead of myself. One of the tells that I have is that I often feel tension in my jaw, which is usually a sign that I'm stressing too much about something. Uh, and so I decided to take off a few hours and I went to a gym. <laughs> it didn't work out uh, just to sort of get the energy out of my system.
0: It That's seems great. like those conflicts can become, you know, pretty emotional depending on the circumstances where, you know, you've got folks that are overworked and stressed out and wanting an advocate to help support them in those challenging circumstances. I mean, there's, you know, you just think about product deadlines and things coming up and, and the company's trying to survive and it needs to survive so it can keep people employed. And so those things are important too. But then we've got these challenges with, Trying to live and be human and enjoy our lives, and things become too stressful that we lose our ability to, you know, function, and we need, you know, advocates on various sides. So, when you engage with someone, let's say there's someone on the team that's burnt out and, and really stressed out, how would you approach empathizing with where they're coming from to help work toward some sort of good? solution to these things?
3: Great question. I think in these kinds of situations, I always sort of come in with the acknowledgement that no one in this conversation owns the truth. We're both working together to understand what the best thing to do is and what the reality of the situation is. And from my perspective, in trying to support someone, seeing that they're burnt out or overworked, you know, that that, I think that's sort of a misnomer. We can sometimes think of being burnt out or overworked as uh, an inherent state or as something external. But I always try to encourage people to bring it internal because we all set boundaries and orders. And the reality of an organization is that there w- will always be a resource constraint, whether that's people or time or money. And it's up to the organization to effectively solve the, what they need <laughs> to solve within the boundaries of those constraints. And so when when people are feeling overworked or they're feeling burnt out, oftentimes there's a there's an imbalance there where the organization perhaps is trying to achieve too much or perhaps there aren't enough resources supplied here. And if you can sort of both internalize it to yourself and say, okay, so it's up to me to set responsible boundaries so that I'm not burnt out, so that I'm not overworked. And how do I, as a, as a manager, support you in finding that boundary uh, and helping push back when people try to, you know, violate your boundaries? And and also how do we as an organization understand where that line is and understand like what kind of slack do we have? Because I think a lot of times in organizations, it's hard to see like, are we at 20% capacity, 200% capacity? Like it's kind of hard to see because the more work you throw at people, unless you're getting pushback, it sort of seems as if you still have more slack, more line you can pull. And so part of this is is sort of, acknowledging that there is a a systems level problem here, where there's a lack of visibility into how overworked someone is, and also helping someone recognize like, hey, here's my boundary, we're over it. Well, now let's figure out a how do we move that boundary back to where it needs to be so that I'm a positive contributor to this team and I can live my life <laughs> in a, in a happy way. And, and also like how, how do we raise this in a way that the organization can see uh, so that we can ultimately be more successful. You know, if, if an organization is burning people out and making them feel overworked all the time, the work is not going to be successful. You know, you, you care for people uh, first and great people who are cared for then care for your projects and deliver great work.
2: Yeah. And it's like, how can like, you know, there'd be like a health check for every person. And like, what, what would that look like? Cause I think it would, if people are left to sort of determine that for themselves, you can get really different conclusions from each person.
3: That is a great question that I don't know the answer to. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. So my organization has a, um, a project health check where, weekly or biweekly, I can't remember, each project team sort of, you know, talks about different aspects of the work and whether or not they're feeling well supported, or if there are things external to the project that are getting in the way of project success. And that gives you sort of data and and interesting insights. Um, We also track our time. And there is a, uh, a way that we track our time that's, that's flagged as support to the team. So that's where, you know, like, managers and people who are assisting in you know making big project decisions those people will track their time to that separate line so that's also interesting to look at because typically people ask for help after they already need it and the people that are close to the project can see that they need help and so if you're looking at the time tracking usually a week or two before something shows up on this project health tracker you see a spike in hours in the kinds of support that people are providing to the project So we have a lot of interesting data on like the project health side of things, but it's really hard to collect data on the human people part of this in a way that like makes people feel supported and doesn't feel creepy. Um, (laughs) There's like a whole like aspect to this on, on whether or not people feel comfortable reporting that they are feeling overworked. And I I haven't solved this problem. I'm curious if y'all have ideas, (laughs) I'd love to learn.
0: One of the things I'm thinking about with, with burnout in particular is I don't think it's directly correlated to the volume of work you're doing. Like there's other aspects and dimensions of things that go into burnout. So like if I'm working on something that I'm really excited about, it can be difficult. It can be really challenging. It can be a huge amount of work. And yet as I work on it, as I get to the other side of that mountain I'm climbing, burnout isn't what I'm feeling like it's a it's a it's a rush being able to accomplish something difficult and and worthwhile and so we don't necessarily burn out directly in correlation with working too many hours say or something directly related to that like like the things I find that happen when people get burned out is when they lose their kind of heart connection with what they're doing and when you when you love what you do, when you're excited about what you're working on, when you're engaged and connected to a sense of purpose with what you're doing, then we usually stay in a pretty good healthy state. We, you know, we gotta, you know, maintain not still, you know, keeping and somewhat in balance, but we're doing pretty okay. And where I see developers usually burning out is like there's some kind of heart crushing aspect of things where people are kind of disconnecting, disengaging with what they're doing emotionally. And they go into this mode of not caring anymore, not having those same compelling reasons to, to want to do those things. And such that when that love connection sort of dissipates, the work becomes too hard to maintain to like force yourself to do, and so you start getting burnt out because you're forcing self yourself to do things that aren't an intrinsically motivated thing. And so I feel like the types of things that we need to do are activities that encourage the sense of of heart connection with with our team, with our project, with our with our customers, and we do need visibility into those things, but you know, maybe conversations, or even just knowing that those things are important, making time to scheduling time to invest in those sorts of things. I'm curious your thoughts on on that.
3: Yeah, thank you for thank you for, for flagging that specifically. I think there's one thing that that comes to mind for me is that is that is this is this work that you once loved that you no longer love? Like, is this something that you've, you've connected with in the past and this really motivated you and now you haven't? Uh, you're not motivated, I should say. And if that's the case, what changed? And I think, you know, brains are tricky. And I think that we've all over the last, you know, pandemic, <laughs> the, the current pandemic, I should say the, the COVID pandemic is what I'm referring to. And uh, I think that as people have coped with lots of trauma in their lives and, and significant shifts and changes, I think it's, it's come out in interesting ways. I think, especially as, as people are you know, learning themselves a little more with new constraints, the the impacts are not always directly connected between say the project work that you're doing, maybe something that you once loved. And now suddenly you no longer feel attached to that. And what is that? Is that, is that that the work is somehow different? Is it that you really just sort of your, your threshold for everything else in your life is just ticking higher and higher and higher. And so now, It's really hard to engage in any of the things that you once loved. I personally have found myself through through the COVID pandemic really finding meaning in repetition. So, I'm now on like a 560-day Duolingo streak and I've got podcasts I listen to every day of the week and this sort of repetition helps sort of mark time in a way that makes me feel you know, more like I have my life together. Uh, and that sort of gives me more capacity and sort of reduces that stress threshold for me. So, I think trying to narrow in on like what specifically changed and and how do we tackle that problem head on? And it might not be the work or connection to the work. The other side of that question is, is this work you love? Maybe this is work that they've never really loved. Maybe this is grunt work. And one thing that I like to acknowledge is that every project has grunt work associated with it. Uh, And if you don't really have a framework for rotating that grunt work, a lot of times it falls to the person who has the least privilege on the team. And so if like, as as a positive team, you can work together and say, hey, these are the set of tasks that just needs to get done. Maybe that's note taking in, in meetings, maybe that's sending out weekly status emails, or, you know, running a particular kind of meeting. Like, let's let's rotate that around so that, you know, we can find a balance between there's a grunt work and then the work that, that we're here to do, the stuff that motivates us. Because if the grunt work doesn't get done, the project won't be successful. But also, we all really want to work on the other thing, too. So let's make sure that no, no one here gets shafted with all that work. Uh, and I think, especially if teams haven't deliberately thought about that, sort of, you know, patterns start to emerge and in, in which people with less privilege kind of get shafted. So... I think that's something to be to, to well acknowledge.
2: Quick shout out: episode one sixty two of this podcast. We talked with Denise Yu, who really is framing exactly what you're talking about. She calls it glue work, and it's that sort of work that's not directly recognized as maybe not directly recognized as a value add, but is the work that holds all of it together. So all of the work that might get done in Jira or around a wiki, or you know, organizing meetings, taking notes, all of the above. And the basic theory is like, how can, just like you said, how can that, how can that glue work be sort of distributed equitably? Um, not to say that certain roles don't intrinsically need to do certain types of glue work because that's what their, their expertise is in. But um, yeah, it, it was a, it was a really good conversation. So if people are interested, go check that out too.
0: What are some ways that you're seeing the pandemic affect people in their work?
3: I think the answer to that question is as varied as the number of people uh, <laughs> that I support. Uh, I, I think each person is sort of affected in dramatically different ways, uh, which I didn't quite expect. But, uh, you know, taking a step back and thinking about it, uh, of course, each person's individual and each person sort of reacts differently. But uh, I, w- I would say that, you know, for, for some people, um, you know, especially people in caretaking roles, the kind of work sort of has to shift to support them. So, you know, if you're someone caretaking, you're often dealing with a lot of details in your out of work life. And especially through the pandemic, now those lives are sort of merging together. I'm currently at a remote organization and have been at a remote organization for the last 10 years or so. Uh, so the remote work thing is not necessarily new, but the complete merging of, of all of the things life and work is something that's, that's still new. And I, I think a lot of people who work remotely regularly often find ways to get get out and get more exposure to people um in their personal time, which is also something that has been limited. And especially if you're caretaking, you you likely are doing that even less. Um, your threshold for, for getting out is even lower. And so if you're sort of constantly dealing with details in your life, it might be good for you to take on more of that glue work or more of the you know, when when you're thinking about the I think of work in sort of three categories. You've got the sort of stretching work or your growth work. And that's work that is right on the cusp of your understanding. Um, you're not really good at it yet. But by failing and by sort of having moderate success, you grow as an individual. Uh, and there's also your like your comfortable work or your safety work. Uh, and that's work that you you know you're good at. You can knock it out of the park. Do it really fast. And I think for folks who are, you know, dealing with a lot in their personal life at the moment, some of, you know, leaning more toward the glue work, more towards the safety work is really important for making you feel successful. And you're not really hungering that growth. I, I wish I remembered the reference, but I heard someone referring to growth as a, as being in a boat in a river before sometimes the river is wide and sometimes the river narrow. When the river is wide, you really need to row. And like when you know, in I found myself personally in the last couple of years not necessarily needing to row as much. The river feels more narrow to me. And so, the current's faster and you're sort of taken away with growth. And you don't really need to do a lot to get there. Instead, you sort of need to, you know, hold on <laughs> and try not to capsize. So, so that's one aspect I would say I, I've seen people.
1: That's such a cool metaphor. I'm going to remember that one. Yeah,
3: I wish I remembered where I heard it from so that I can reference it for you all. It's definitely not an original idea of mine. But uh, yeah, the, the uh, another aspect of growth that I... Uh, or another aspect of um, the way people have individually been coping and, and needing support is around their social connection. You know, that's that's sort of a, uh, an, an easy example. I think we've all sort of felt differences in our social connection through COVID. And sometimes that takes the form of... Having more structured meetings, some people find more structure gives them the ability to communicate with each other in a way that makes you feel social and also isn't as draining. And other people are the exact opposite, where they want to get together in a room with less structure, so that you can all just hang out. And the structure gives people a sense of feeling stressed. And so the way that I've been kind of looking across my organization is what kind of things are we providing? And and are they varied enough that we're capturing the majority of people in the support that they need?
1: I thought about a lot in the dance communities I'm in, that there's a lot of introverts that love to go dancing, partner dancing, because it's structured, and they'll say so. Like, I love that I can just show up and do the thing, and it's social. But I haven't thought about the other side of it, which you just said, which is some people don't want the structure. I'm sure those people exist, and I probably know a lot of them, but they don't I haven't heard people say that about themselves as much. The introverts in the dance communities know it and they say it. The other side, I'm going to look out for it. That's cool. I used to plan
3: music for, for religious music ministry. And one of the rules we had is, is that if you're always picking things you like, you're leaving people out. And I, I, I think of that not necessarily attached to music ministry, but attached to all the other work that I do. And that's if your preferences are always represented, someone else's preferences are not. And so trying to look around and say, who's not in the room right now? Who could be benefiting from having their preferences heard once in a while?
1: I want to jump back to how can we tell if people are about to be burnt out at work? How can we help people have a healthier environment? One of the lenses that I think about all the time is Project Aristotle by Google that came out, I don't know, maybe five years ago at this point. And we're mentioning a lot of the aspects of it in our conversation already, Earlier, we were talking about on their list, four and five are meaning of work, like personal importance and impact of work, which is like the company mission a little bit more. The other three that we touched on a little bit, but not as much as psychological safety, which is number one on their list, dependability, like depending on each other, the coworkers, and structure and clarity, like goals, roles and execution. I'm sure this is not a full list of what keeps employee individual employees happy. But I think a team environment that ha- hits all of these five really well is going to have less burnout. I mean, more than think. It's been studied. That's true. And so when I did team health surveys before for the team, for the people, I like these five questions a lot. I bet it's a lot like the project surveys, Andrew, you were talking about. A lot of team health surveys are similar. But you got me thinking now, what's missing from that list that's focused on the team that would show up in the individual one? And I don't have a clear answer for that. And adding on
3: to that, uh, is there a way where you can collect honest data? I I think... One of the sort of benefits of having one-on-one relationships with your immediate manager is that they can kind of read between the lines and what you're saying after they get to know you well enough. I think for me, that usually happens about a year in with a new employee, where you sort of get to know someone well enough that you can understand, you know, if they if they come to you and say, "Hey, this is you know, I'm this is I'm struggling with this right now on this project," is that a huge red flag, (laughs) or is that Normal. Uh, I think it, it takes a while to get to know someone and, and then you can read between what they're, the lines and what they're saying and say, okay, this is, this is a big deal. It deserves my attention. Like, I'm going to focus on this. And one of the things I struggle with, with capturing this information is that A, it's hard to capture that sort of interpretation part in, in these kinds of surveys. And B, the data that you get is, um, You know, sometimes when, like we were talking about burnout a lot, sometimes when people are burned out, they don't have the energy to submit these surveys. (laughs) So, the data is not particularly um, representative, but that's a hard thing to keep track of because how do you know, right? So, it's a really tricky problem. I'm going to continue to try things uh, to get this data, but I I do like the idea of of looking between the lines on, um, you know, if we're surveying team health, like, is there a way we can focus in on individuals?
0: There's also a lot of things that we don't talk about. like Casey brought up psychological safety, for example. and if you don't feel safe, you're not likely to necessarily bring up the reasons that you don't feel safe because you don't feel safe. <laughs> uh, you know I'm, I'm thinking about just some team dynamics of you know some teams I've worked on in the past where we had someone on the team that was had a strong personality. And we would do code reviews and things and some folks that were, you know, maybe more junior on the team felt sensitive and, you know, maybe attacked by certain things. But the response was to sort of shut down and fall in line with things and not rock the boat. And, you know, you ask them what's going on and everything's fine, right? And so, so there's like dynamics of not having psychological safety, but you might not necessarily get at those by talking to folks. Yet, if you're sitting in the room and you know the people and kind of see the interactions taking place, you see how they respond to one another in context. Because, you know, I'm thinking about where those dynamics were visible. And, you know, at, at the time, this this was you know, the case I'm thinking of was before the days where we were doing, you know, pull requests and and, and stuff, where, you know, we did, we did our code reviews, you know, in a room throwing code up on on a screen, and would talk through things that way. And you'd see these dynamics occur, you know, when someone would comment, make a comment, and how another human would just respond to that person. And you see people kind of like turn in words on themselves. And you know, these, these sorts of just, you know, dynamics of interaction where people's confidence shut down, gets shut down, or someone else is like, super smart. And so they won't challenge them because well, they're a super smart person. So obviously, they know, right. And some people speak in a certain way that exudes confidence, even if they're not necessarily like confident about their idea, they just present in a certain way. And other people like react to that. And so, you know, you see these sorts of dynamics in teams that come up all the time mm-hmm. that are sort of like the silent undercurrents of how we all manage to get along with one another and keep things flowing okay. And how do we create an environment and encourage an environment where people feel safer to to talk about these things?
3: To me, um, psychological safety and inclusion are very closely tied. And I believe that that inclusion is everyone's responsibility on a team. And in in the situation you described there, who else was in that room and why didn't they stop it? I think that, that you know, it, it's easy to say, oh, these two people are having a, a disagreement here. But if we all truly believe that it's our responsibility to create a safe environment and include everyone and their ideas... As you mentioned, everyone in that room could see what was happening. <laughs> so, uh, so it's like, I think there's a cultural thing there that perhaps needs some, some work as an organization. And I'm not saying that that is something that I don't experience in my teams as well. I think this is work that's constant and continual. Every time you notice something, it's to bring it up and invite someone back into the conversation. You know, there's. Some people like to to think about calling out or versus calling in. And I really like that distinction. When someone oversteps a boundary or makes a mistake, they've removed themselves from this safe community. And it's up to you as a safe community to invite them back in and, and let them know their expectations. And I, I like the idea of that that sort of aspect of, of calling people in. Obviously that requires some confidence and I encourage people, especially people that have institutional privilege to, to be especially looking out for this because you can really demonstrate to your team how much you're willing to support them um, if you keep an eye out for these kinds of dynamics. One thing you mentioned really, really made me think about earned dogmatism. You know, when, when people are around for a longer time, they become more cl- close minded. Um, and that's the earned, earned the dogmatism effect. Uh, and it's the idea that since you've been here for so long, or since you've been working in this industry so long, you're the expert. Um, and it causes you to become more and more closed minded to new ideas, which obviously is, is not good. <laughs> so uh, anytime I sort of see that pattern popping up, I try to just let people know like, hey, do you know, do you know about this effect? Do you know that this happens with people and teams? And, and is that how you would like to be? Uh, would you like to become more close-minded or would you like to continue learning? And I think just the awareness of the fact that that's something that you're going to inherently start doing kind of helps people fight against that.
2: I'm trying to imagine a, like a typical, if you can call it that, team in a tech company. And they're probably in a state where a lot of these things we're talking about might not come so easy. Because I think what we're saying is, is that a lot of this is dependent on everyone on the team being vulnerable about sort of where they're at. And I wonder if you have any ideas about how a team can get from there to the ideal state, you know, because it sounds like that's a really big barrier between like, how do you, I can't have better psychological safety and inclusion without somehow getting people's feedback feedback. And I can't get feedback if they don't feel safe. So like, how do you sort of, is there some kind of iterative way to sort of improve on that? Yeah. So one thing that I have direct experience with
3: is, you know, in the federal government, there's, there's a lot of funding models between the federal government and local governments where the federal government will pay for a majority of something as long as the local government follows a set of rules on implementing a program. So like Medicare and Medicaid are examples of this um, and other sort of benefits programs as well. Even the, the federal highway system, the reason why our interstates are all the same is because the federal government pays for a majority of them if the local authorities building roads follows a set of rules and guidelines. I think that's an, the, one of the, the most dramatic examples of a power difference. If you know, you're know you forming a joint team to make changes to Medicare or build a new highway or improve rail service in your, in your city, and one person in the room controls 90% of the money. I think that's a pretty dramatic example of what could be a really psychologically unsafe environment. And it requires a lot of effort to break down that boundary of, hey, I'm here to say yes to what you want. But in the reality is, you know, the federal government representatives in those situations are often looking to collaborate and help solve problems, because they're looking out to see how do I best spend this money to achieve the best effect? But the tendency is that other members of the team that, that coming from the 10% side of the house will, you know, they're responsible for the execution of the program. Uh, and so they tend to hide mistakes or hide hiccups as much as possible so that they don't get their funding cut. And that's just a very, a very natural thing that happens. And the experience that I have in this situation is what I like to think of as the Waffle House solution. <laughs> um, I, I heard uh, I heard of, of, of a particular person in this situation uh, taking the whole team to Waffle House, and this obviously works better in in person. It's hard to take people to Waffle House remotely, but it's definitely not something that you you can't do. And the idea behind that kind of conversation is just like the problem here is that you're not connecting with each other on a human level, and you know you want to be safe to share your vulnerability with each other. But before you can be vulnerable with each other, you have to recognize each other's humanity and let everyone know that you respect each other. And so I think an easy way to do that is to share a meal. Maybe it's to play a game together. Maybe it's to schedule a meeting for 30 minutes in which you talk about no work. And in the example that I gave, it's up to the person in the position of power here to set that example. Because you know, if you're someone without that privilege, without, if you're you have someone who pays for 10% of a project instead of 90%, it's hard for you to go to your 90% funder and say, can I waste 30 minutes of your time? Can I waste half a day? Because waste in this case is, is sort of the idea from the business side of the house. You're wasting time. But in reality, if you, if you slow down and connect with each other on a human level, you know, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Uh, so you can sort of help the team develop that sense of humanity with each other, create an environment where hopefully you can be more vulnerable with each other and, and collaborate more humanly with each other. So I wouldn't necessarily say that this is like a, a textbook plan, like, okay, you've got problems on your team. Let's go to Waffle House and the problem solved. Uh, no, I'm not saying that, but I am saying perhaps look for opportunities for you to recognize each other's humanity and break down perhaps a structure that might be standing in the way of connecting with each other. And then just focusing on that can hopefully help you find that vulnerability better.
2: You can't take yourself seriously at a Waffle House. It's just not possible.
3: (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty serious about Waffle House. I don't know about you.
1: (laughs) I'm starting to get a craving here. Yeah, I totally agree. I love that this is being talked about more and more. How do we build psychological safety on teams? It comes from trust, human connection, vulnerability. And how do we build that by treating each other as humans?
0: The things I think about just contrasting some teams I've seen over time and how they how they ended up developing in the culture that, that emerged is the technical leadership on the team that is... You know, that sort of organically evolves. Some people have strong personalities. They tend to sort of naturally act in a leader oriented way. Even if they don't officially have, you know, the title hat on their head, they're somebody that people respect and look up to. They value their opinion and thoughts. And whoever those people are that have sort of the natural gravity tend to have a lot of influence over the emergent culture. So, you know, when I've seen people kind of in that position, be really supportive of listening to the ideas of other folks on the team, creating space and treating people with respect, creating an environment where people are heard and listened to. And it's about the ideas that the behavior of those people have an outsized impact on the culture that emerges by just how they interact and treat and respect others and other folks on the team tend to mimic and model that behavior of wherever that natural kind of gravity is going toward. And so if you've got folks on the team that are kind of like that, that have a tendency to lift up other people around them, then what emerges is a much more psychologically safe environment. When you've got somebody in that gravity position that has sort of a ego defensive sort of response like they want to continue to feel like the competent expert ones when people say counter things that it is sort of positioned as a as a challenge and you get you get a very different sort of set of dynamics that emerge where people tend to be more walk on eggshells try to say things very carefully to not upset things you know, and I I feel like it's just like human instinct response, <laughs> like depending on who's who's in the room, who you're talking to, how you anticipate they will react to something, that sort of the emergent interactions come from that, and that the the whoever those gravity people are tend to have this outsized influence, and so who you have in your organization of those folks, I'd say probably being being really careful to hire people that have a tendency to and a desire to want to lift other people up and to maybe not have such a fragile competitive ego dynamic going on.
3: Absolutely. And I I think that I, I, well, I, I have lots of feelings on hiring, (laughs) but I, I do think that we don't, uh, in the tech industry, we don't spend as much time focusing on communication and, uh, then I think that we should. I think a lot of times people who are in that ego situation are expressing vulnerability, but poorly. And uh, I think if, if they had more communication skills, um, they could potentially, um, potentially express that differently in a way that was more positive to culture. So uh, sort of zooming back to one of the things you said around, around leadership and evolution and evolutionary culture and, and who steps into leadership roles. I think one of the things that is really important to me about good leadership is staying ahead of what your big problems are. And that isn't necessarily saying working ahead of everyone else. That's saying sort of keeping your eye on the horizon. Like, are you looking out to where we're going and what kind of problems are, are we seeing here? And if there's an acknowledgement of an issue with psychological safety on teams, letting leaders emerge naturally may not be the right approach you can deliberately select someone who demonstrates the culture that you want to create uh, on a team as that technical leader and give them, you know, there's, there's sort of, I I like the ACE model, the appreciation, the coaching and evaluation of of leadership where it's like, it's like you give them that appreciation on the particular things that they are doing really well and in front of the team so that the team can say, Oh, that's what the norm is here. That's what, that's what we should be doing. And that also gives the person who may have, you know, perhaps more of the natural leadership role, if that, that, that would have naturally emerged, but perhaps is missing some of those communication skills or other skills that makes them a more round teammate gives them an opportunity to be out of the spotlight, so that they can work on developing those skills and becoming a more active contributor to the team, uh, instead of holding it back in some
1: ways. I love that we keep saying the word skill, because these are all learnable skills, you can learn how to communicate well, you can learn how to be a strong, effective leader. You can learn how to foster a psychologically safe and inclusive environment. You can learn all these things. I love to work at places where they want this, the culture, that the leaders, the people who work on the team want it, even if they don't know how yet, because that growth is possible as long as there's like the desire for that. I think we all have like a base level of desire, but some people are aware of it and articulate it and say, I saw a tweet the other day, actually. Someone was looking for a job and of their five criteria, top five they listed in tweet." psychological safety was on the list that person knows they want to work on a team like that that's pretty cool so if someone wants uh, their team to learn these skills i mean a natural way is managers coaching their employees to do that kind of thing like coaching how to coach that can work pretty well it's pretty powerful another one is communities of practice where you have people come together and talk and it could even literally be about culture some companies have a culture community of practice where they talk about how to influence the culture some places don't have the skills yet and they hire external coaches. There's a whole bunch of companies, including me. Plug for myself, I'm a consultant for making happy teams, and I do coaching and training too. There's online courses, there's books, there's podcasts, like greater than code, it's pretty good. You should check it out. But like acknowledging the problem, being aware of it is a huge key first step. And I don't I don't like to push for psychological safety in a place that doesn't value it. It's just a recipe for burnout for me. It's happened to me a lot. But in an environment where it is already desired, getting people from wanting to, to being able to, that's super satisfying work. And I think that's true for anyone in tech who's talking about this kind of stuff, who cares about it. You want to make a difference where you can.
3: Absolutely. Knowing knowing when to, um, to jump ship at an organization, uh, because you are fighting upstream at a time when you're either being taken away in the current or... There aren't enough other people around you to swim upstream with you. It is super important. One of the things that sort of helped me open a door in my life that I'd, I'd be happy to share with you all is, is uh, an assessment I took a couple years back called the TKI assessment, Thomas Kincaid Institute assessment or something. Uh, I could have gotten that all wrong, but it's a, it's a, a tool that understands that helps you understand what skills you already have around conflict resolution and what skills you can grow around conflict resolution and that unlocked a lot in my life specifically because it allowed me to to understand how i naturally resolve conflict and to understand when i should push against my natural instincts to resolve conflict and when i should feel that i have exhausted my abilities to resolve this conflict and that last step is is a great a great indicator if you if you've tried everything you can to resolve a conflict and maybe that conflict is around creating a psychologically safe workspace, you yourself cannot do this. So can you bring in other people that can help resolve this? Or is it time to walk away and, and find a team that supports you better? The five different modes that they, they reference in TKI are competing, collaborative, co- collaborating, I should say, compromising, avoiding, and accommodating. And when I first took the assessment, I scored a zero in competing, uh, which means I had no no recognizable skill, uh, in, in competing. And when I look back into my history and, and my childhood, how I was raised, that totally makes sense. You know, I was raised in a house, in a, in a household where when people wronged you, you let it go. Uh, you moved on to find people who would support you, uh, and believed that that person would eventually experience justice and that that was not your responsibility to do that. So that, apply that to my work life today. That means people can walk over me. <laughs> uh, and, and so, like, how do you pick up those skills? Uh, the, the assessment doesn't necessarily dive too much into how you pick up the skills, but I think just knowing where your blind spots are was really helpful for me because then I could recognize a situation where A, I flagged that I'm experiencing conflict. B, my natural tendency is to accommodate this conflict or avoid it. C, is that the right approach for this environment? Is that the right approach for this problem? And then D, either do that approach or change it. And it's really uncomfortable. I often, when I'm competing, it makes me feel selfish. And I acknowledge that. So, when I'm like, okay, I'm going to change my approach and I'm going to compete here. I'm going to argue. It's like, okay, I'm readying myself. Like, okay, I'm going to feel selfish now. Be ready to feel selfish. Go for it. <laughs> uh, and that's just sort of how I would counteract those natural tendencies. So I wouldn't say there's no, there's one particular like magic bullet on like, this is the assessment that you should do or anything like that. But there are a number of tools out there to sort of help you understand yourself and what skills you have uh, and what skills you might want to grow into. And they can also provide a, a sense of completeness around a particular skill area like conflict avoidance or conflict resolution and, uh, and sort of let you know when you've exhausted the available options in front of
2: you.
0: It's interesting to me just thinking about where we started this discussion with boundaries and, you know, just people can react in a different way. And, and if you have someone who's kind of overstepping boundaries, how do you learn to stand up for yourself? And if, if your instinct is to just run away from conflict whenever it comes up, then you know, I, I you know, we've got other sorts of problems and stuff that emerge and sometimes the right thing to do is to stand up for yourself and to be able to have the confidence to feel like you can. And you know, one of the things that, that helps me with that is is when someone else is upset and reacting and stuff is to, is and you know, maybe they're attacking me or something is to separate myself personally for that. So if I imagine them in their head and I'm a card, I'm a cardboard cutout character that I'm like, okay, they're kicking the cardboard character and that's not me. They, you know, they have a picture in their head of this little cardboard character that they've got, you know, an upset relationship with, that that's separate from me. And so I can kind of look at, the dynamics that are of what's going on with them and why they're upset with this cardboard character kind of understand what's going on in their, their world with separating myself from that. And then I can, I can respond in a way that is standing up for myself without necessarily reacting to the situation where I feel like I need to defend myself against an attack that, you know, something going on that really has nothing to do with me But still, I got to I need to be able to stand up for myself and not necessarily, you know, back away from the situation. Right. So I find like those kinds of skills really help with being able to not not take other people's stuff. So, uh, you know, so personally, You, you know, you talked about like the challenge with boundaries and over empathizing can put us in a situation where the things that other people say can end up hurting us a lot, or we internalize somebody else's feelings so much as someone else's worldview so much that we can lose ourselves in someone else's emotions and feels. And how how do we separate enough so that we can have a solidity in our own self and our own sense of knowing such that we can have our own compass that doesn't fall over, that we can feel bolstered in ourselves, independent of what everyone else is doing right? That's where that, you know, empathy and boundaries and resilience and stuff come in. So a question for you, you know, you did mention this, you know, boundary thing early on, what are what are some of the things that have helped you to develop boundaries or some of the tools that, that you use to, to help in those challenging situations?
3: I love the cardboard cutout analogy. I personally like to replay situations as if they are, um, as if they are soap operas. So I'll describe the characters, especially when things get heated emotionally, it's easy for me to recognize it as a soap opera, which helps me like chuckle about the emotional component of it in, in a way that, that sort of externalizes it from my feelings. It, I mean, it, it's, it's a really tr- tough situation. That's a, that's a tough ask. Um, I think one thing that I do in those, in the exact moments uh, when I am, you know, feeling, hurt or devalued or some kind of emotional component is attached to something someone just told me, is to, um, again, sort of pull that e-brake and say, okay, like, stop. I am not my work. Similar to, you know, when you submit a pull request, you know, you are not your code. Uh, I am not my work. Uh, I am not this conversation. I am a whole self. Uh, I am valued as myself. And I'm surprised by something that just happened. And I'm reacting to it in, in a particular emotion re, emotional reaction. So, if you can sort of create a pattern of uh, when, when people sort of get you into that emotional state, whether or not they were intending on getting you there of saying, hold on, I'm caught, I'm caught off guard by that. Can you tell me more? Like, I, I, I don't understand that comment or, you know, it, it sort of shifts the power dynamic from someone putting you on the spot, which they may or may not have intended to do. To shift it back towards them to say now the responsibility is on you uh, as the person who has made me feel upset or you know I'm, I'm caught off guard by that and the responsibility now is on you to sort of describe more so that i can contextualize the emotion that i'm feeling or just give me time to react to that you know you don't always have to immediately respond and and oftentimes myself i i find myself reacting too quickly and so I, I, all of the tools that I have in my toolbox are slowing down. So that's one of the tools that I, that I definitely use to help sort of acknowledge that something is unusual. Another tool is, um, asking people to summarize. So, you know, acknowledging that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised by that and I'm starting to get lost in the details of this meeting. Like, would it be all right if you, if I asked you to summarize the main points here or, could you, you know, follow up in Slack after this, or follow up an email after this, and and that's another one of those like, you know, my natural tendency to avoid. It's like, okay, I can take a step back here uh, and avoid this immediate conflict or this immediate emotion, and then take a breather. I, I often, you know, you know, I. Um, in the before times, I would go out and speak at conferences and I'm not a nat- natural extrovert. And so, I have this tendency after I speak at a place to go find a closet or some dark room somewhere uh, just to like recharge a little bit, do nothing. I often will just sit there and like sweat in a closet for 30 minutes or something like that. And that process allows me to sort of reset my blood chemistry and say, okay, how do I fully acknowledge this situation? Like, do I feel like I did a good job? Do I... Am I proud of the work that I'm doing? Am I proud of this? Is this where my boundaries should be? And it sort of allows me to give that moment to step away, to reset a little bit. So, I mean, it's not it's it's something I think that I'm, I'll spend the rest of my life learning, which is how to how to recognize my boundaries and and set them appropriately. And I think that's right. I think I should be continuing to learn as I continue to change.
0: I really like the summary thing. Just thinking about you know if someone's really upset being it's it's a pretty safe question to ask and at the same time it forces them to kind of take take a step back and really think about what it is that they're trying to say because usually when we're upset we just kind of like spew lots of words of like upsetness but it you know it forces you to kind of shift into your like more of a thinking mode away from kind of emotional mode which i feel like would have a really good impact on kind of level setting the conversation it's just like you know take a deep breath <laughs> you know, what is it you're trying to communicate here? What are, the, what are the main points? I really like that summarization idea.
3: The one thing I always tell myself that, um, in those moments is nothing is more important than my next breath. And that helps me to sort of unplug from the situation and focus on breathing and focus on relaxing uh, and then be able to show back up and re-engage.
2: Something that I think can be important is if I'm at work and I'm realizing that I need to I'd be vulnerable in one way or another because I need to draw a boundary or um, for some other reason. something that I think I feel like would be really important that I would really need to have is an example that would give me some idea of what will happen when I do that. and how can team members sort of get examples of what happens when I'm vulnerable? because if they don't know what will happen, they're probably going to be left to their own personal experiences from, you know, maybe at another job or something like that, that probably don't apply, that probably would be completely different. So it's like, how can managers or leaders sort of help people sort of see or experience like examples of, you know, this is how we talk about difficult conversations to normalize it and to sort of help people understand this is what will happen and this is the way we go about it. And, and this, and yes, it will be safe. I don't think
3: you can say that.
2: (laughs) Uh, And
0: that
3: maybe is controversial. um, But I don't think you can say, yes, this will be safe. Mm. I think you can strive for it and you can work for an environment that's safe. But in a professional setting, there's always a line. And maybe it's not safe to share something that you think is appropriate to share. And there are lots of reasons for that. Maybe it's an impact on other people. But I I think the pattern i like to encourage in people is ask for permission which is something that is maybe not maybe not always universally applicable advice but oftentimes i find myself talking to people in when they're on teams where they want to say something controversial uh, or they want to say something difficult uh, or they want to share something that's personal on how they attach to to this project or this work or something that happened in the team and i think there's a lot of power in Asking people to support you, to coming in and saying, I really want to share something with you all. but I'm not sure how it's going to go. Can you support me in this? Are you interested in hearing? Uh, the uh, The way I often say it when I'm trying to say something controversial is, uh, can I be spicy for a moment? <laughs> uh, and that's an acknowledgement of saying like, hey, I'm going to say something controversial. It gives people like a moment to set their expectations And it gives them a moment to recognize how they should respond um, before they hear what you say uh, and then are caught up in the emotion of the response. Um, And I think that's a really kind thing you can do to your team to say, like, hey, can I be vulnerable for a second here? Like, this is a project which involves researching prison populations and three of my family members are in prison. Like if you, if you let off with saying three of my family members are in prison, people don't know how to, how, to, how to understand that comment. But if you start by saying, can I be vulnerable for a second? People recognize that, hey, you're sharing something deep about you and your personality and it's something tied to your sense of identity or something deep within you. Uh, and in a, in a way that it's not the responsibility of the team to validate or say it's right or wrong, but it is the responsibility of the team to hear you. Uh, And to understand you and ask questions um, to say, hey, like, tell me more about that. Tell me more about how that connects to this work. Or do you want to interview some of your family for research on this project? Or do you want them to stay out of this project? Or um, how do we support you as a team member? Is this something that you want to acknowledge, but you'd prefer to put that in a box and keep it on the shelf? Or is that a part of your identity that you'd like to bring to this conversation uh, and bring to this work? I think those conversations like can really benefit from that like asking for permission step. And you don't really need to wait for people's answers there, <laughs> but it gives you uh, an opportunity to sort of set the tone for the conversation.
2: I feel like if I was working on your team and I saw Andrew use that phrase, can I have permission to be vulnerable? Can I be spicy? <laughs> I feel like later when I felt like I needed to be vulnerable, I would feel a lot more comfortable because like now here's a map that's like, if I do this, it's probably like not completely out of bounds. And that now I have like a way to know how to, here's how we go about that on this team because, because the leader modeled it.
0: Yeah. Bingo. I was just thinking about, you know, all the different ways I've screwed things up and stuff though. And, learned, I guess, you know, the hard way what what boundaries are the hard way of what unsafe things are is is by making mistakes and screwing things up. And, you know, I think about some of these experiences that I had. And I feel like the saving grace for me, even when I messed something up, is that I genuinely cared. And that people knew that and could see that. And so that, you know, when I apologized for something, it was like authentic and that we could move forward and stuff because I cared. Underneath it all, I genuinely cared. And so even though I I made, you know, I made some mistakes and stuff with things, that was okay. And then after that, when I was thinking about being in, you know, more of a leadership position, one of the things I made a point of doing was putting mistakes and stuff I've made on center stage, like making it okay and safe for people to talk about, you know, when they when they screwed something up, right? And as being in a leadership position, when I talked about all the things that well, you know, I I screwed up this thing and I screwed up this thing. And and it makes it okay when our leaders demonstrate vulnerability or create create ways and pathways that show us how to do those things safely too.
3: That reminds me of a a friend of mine uh, had a conversation with me last weekend specifically around a mistake that they had made. And that mistake was in an online community, they were discussing building a world uh, in a video game and they suggested building something that was offensive. And they immediately dove into how they didn't know it was offensive at the time And that the reaction that other people gave to them was inappropriate and that they felt like they didn't know how to apologize in a way that would help support growth or re-engagement with the community and that they felt like maybe I'm just being canceled or like maybe people are overreacting here. And after the whole conversation, I sort of just let them talk out and they ended with like, how do I re-engage here And, and when people are now ignoring me? And, you know, I just said, well, you don't deserve a second chance. Like, not that anyone deserves, you know, to be sort of cancelled immediately or cut out. But like, when someone says something offensive that you take offense in, it's up to that person how much tolerance they have for you. And if someone has decided that this in this situation was so offensive or that their tolerance for that offense is, is low you don't get a second chance there. That's a mistake that becomes part of you. And hopefully you can allow that burden to sort of not rest on your shoulders and hold you down, but you can internalize it and learn from it. And it becomes part of the foundation you stand on so that you don't make these kinds of mistakes next time. And also (laughs) demonstrating an aspect of my superpower. um, And also... I dis- I disagree with you. Like, I don't think you didn't know that that was offensive. <laughs> I think you had that part of your brain turned off. And like, hey, can you, can we, like, talk about that? Like, could we, I, I think that this particular thing, like, you knew was offensive, but, you know, you were thinking about this in a different context, or you thought this would be okay. And now you're sort of rewriting this and placing yourself as a victim. And that is a dangerous pattern. So, don't do that. <laughs> So I I think that in a work setting, sort of tying this back in, in a work setting, I think that when you are having these sort of difficult or vulnerable conversations, being able to acknowledge when you've made a mistake, maybe perhaps when you've shared something that is offensive, or perhaps you've made a comment about someone else's vulnerable moment that's offensive, I think it's really important to like, to acknowledge the mistake to provide the opportunity for others to give you feedback, and acknowledge that, like, you've damaged trust here. And it's, you know, it's your responsibility as the person who damaged that trust to then rebuild it. And maybe rebuilding that trust means leaving the organization or changing teams. Or maybe that means really, truly, deeply listening and empathizing with people moving into that position of hurt that you've caused and being uncomfortable with it, especially when you're personally wronged. When I'm personally wronged, I really feel that I want people to understand how, how much I'm hurt. And if there isn't a, a great opportunity to sort of share that, that pain with someone, it's hard to accept their apology because you don't, you don't feel like they understand. In those situations, you know, it's, it's up to the person who's, who's sort of done the controversial thing uh, or overstepped that boundary to sort of step in and say, let's talk about this when you're ready.
0: And also, the other thing I'm just thinking is that, you know, when things do happen, you know, we, we need opportunities and stuff to start over too. And sometimes the right thing to do is walk away from the whole thing, but learn from it. And there's always there's so many people out there, there's so many opportunities out there. And, you know, we're surfing on the waves of life. We learn things along the way. And there's always new relationships and things we can build. And if we take those lessons and stuff with us for, for when we do screw things up, that maybe we can navigate the next opportunity a little bit different. You know, I've had I've had enough, you know, facepalm <laughs> moments and stuff of, of just, you know, like relationships where, you know, the things that come to mind for me are, you know, things where like someone was like put off from me my because I'm kind of a passionate, excited person. And not everyone knows how to like deal with that or might think I'm a weirdo or something. And so like, if I, you know, I'll scare someone away. And I don't mean to I'm like, but I'm a nice person kind of thing, you know, but you know, sometimes there's nothing you can do about it, right? It's like this first impression thing that you can never really fix. But there's other opportunities out there. There's other relationships. And maybe the purpose of this interaction in your life is just for you to internalize and learn this lesson so that you carry it with you, you know, f- forward and just, you know, we're, we're all surfing on the waves of life and these kind of things happen. And it's not the end. It's just an opportunity, you know, it's an opportunity to, to learn a lesson that then we can take with us into the future.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I mean, I've been fired from jobs, had friends cut me out of my life, out of their lives, and made a lot of a lot of mistakes, and that that becomes part of who I am, and I carry that forward. And I'm happy that I've made these mistakes in my past because they prepare me for making bigger mistakes in the future.
1: What could be more fun? A lot of people get stuck on these experiences, thinking about them over and over and over, getting in a loop. Uh, and one way to get out of the loop is to correct the situation, which people like to try first, of course like try to get back into that relationship uh, or a community another way is to realize there's nothing you can do and move on that's often called acceptance and like uh, meditation mindfulness terms uh, but it can be hard to get to acceptance if you feel like there's something you can do still or something you could learn you didn't learn everything you could yet and how to do that is hard it's a lot of the chapters in the book i wrote "Debugging your brain i'm not going to go into that right now but There are things you can do to get out of the loop when you're stuck in the loop. I feel so awkward ever plugging my own stuff, but it's so relevant. It's what we're talking about here. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all don't mind, I know.
2: No, I'm glad to hear about it.
1: Yeah, let's go to reflections. So this is the part of the episode where we each reflect on something that stuck out to us, something we'll take with us, something that was interesting from today's episode.
0: One of the things that stood out to me, you know, as we were talking about psychological safety and these dynamics of leadership and who we choose as leaders is being important is this intersection between once we identify what the kinds of things are that we want to select for, that we can identify those people and then give them um, acknowledgement, the baton. Of you know, an official hat to wear, and what the effect of that is is a way to sort of say to the organization of, oh, these are the normal things that we want to build around those characteristics. So there's this intersection between identifying those things and acknowledging that with, you know, I'm, I'm holding up a little ball right now. they like, like you know give someone the baton, the thing or whatever. and, and that the combination of those two things, is what creates the precedent for what is the normal we're trying to move toward. So it's not just the hiring. It's not just, you know, the, the, you know, management things that we do. It's like the intersection of those two things that sets the norm.
2: I'm thinking a lot about a possibility of sort of a getting stuck in a, in a loop where people want to be vulnerable with each other, but they can't because they don't want to be the first one. <laughs> so I, I'm really thinking a lot about like how, what are ways to sort of break out of that? And uh, I don't know that it might just involve finding ways that people can be sort of vulnerable about maybe something a little bit lower stakes and sort of see if you can't iteratively sort of build up on that. But yeah, I'm thinking a lot about that. Like, How do you sort of evolve the culture to enable vulnerability a little bit
1: more? I'm taking away some metaphors, and I wish I wrote them all down, but I have to go through the episode again. I remember Andrew's river metaphor when it's wide or narrow, and you might have to row or not, and Artie, your cardboard cutout. That if someone's arguing with you, you can imagine the cardboard cutout of yourself that they're arguing with to separate it from your That That visual metaphor is so powerful. I can't wait to use that myself sometime. Andrew, how about you?
3: Uh, For me, to add to your list of metaphors, Talking about psychological safety, building psychological safety and building a culture of being able to share vulnerable things and be able to provide each other feedback, that really builds the strong foundation so that you can build the house, uh-huh, the house being the project that you're actually doing, the, the work that you're doing, without that strong foundation. I think the the, the house is shaky, it doesn't have that firm foundation and uh on the subject of like being vulnerable and how do you break into that vulnerability i think it's important to acknowledge the the leadership here being the first to be vulnerable and being the first to follow uh, are both demonstrations of leadership so if you're looking at who on your team you'd like to you know nominate or select to be your next leader to create that sense of that that culture shift the person who's vulnerable and the person who follows i think are great people to look at
1: like that TED Talk, The First Follower. Exactly. I think you showed me that years ago, Andrew. <laughs>
3: love it. <laughs> yes. The, the, the TED Talk about dancing on a hillside. Yes. Uh, right at the end here, if you don't mind, I'd love to put in a little plug. AT&F uh, is, a, is a, a part of the federal government. And that means that I'm a federal employee and a, a civil servant. My salary is paid by all the folks in, that are paying their taxes. And I just want to put in a plug for civil service. Not necessarily for ATF. Um, that's just the area where I found my talents seem to be best used. But uh, maybe, maybe for you, uh, dear listener, that is uh, your your local government. Maybe that's your your state government, or uh, maybe that means running for office. The government that we have is the is is not perfect. It is the best one we figured out how to create. And if you want to be involved in changing what the best is, or demonstrating that what we have is not as good as what you want. Uh, one of the great ways to do that is to be involved in changing it. So if you haven't considered looking for a position uh, as a programmer, as a, as a project manager, as a product person, designer, at, all across the board, the government both federally and state and, and locally uh, needs people like that. So try to find those people and, and figure out how to support them.
0: Well, thank you, Andrew, for joining us. This was a great conversation.
3: It was such a pleasure. It was an honor to be a guest uh, and uh, hope you all have a, have a great day, including those that are listening.